Just when did Mulan get down to business to defeat the Huns? And what did it mean for her to bring honor to her family anyway? Join us as we explore these questions on Footnoting Disney. Hello, this is Lucy. Welcome to Footnoting History. In this episode of our Footnoting Disney series, I'll be covering the many versions of the Mulan story. Mulan is a story without a single historical precedent. From a medieval ballad, to early modern narratives, to plays and operas, it's been told over and over again. Mulan's exploits are always presented as having happened once upon a time, any time from the Han Dynasty in the 200s BCE to the early Tang period, 700s Common Era. The one constant is that Mulan and her actions are extraordinary. Mulan has been described as perhaps the best-known Chinese literary figure outside China. She's an ideal figure for adaptation in many ways. Her story is set in the vague, romantic, and safely different past, where stories critiquing social norms and exploring possibilities outside them can be safely located. Her actions raise more questions than they answer, about gender roles, about the individual and the community, and about Confucian ideals of obeying one's parents and serving one's community. So each new retelling can find its own answers and take its own position on who Mulan is, what she does, and why this matters. Likewise, readers and viewers and listeners can take their own positions too. And last but not least, who doesn't love an underdog story about an awesome woman warrior? The Disney film of 1998 is the version of Mulan's story that is best known in the U.S., and perhaps more broadly outside China and the Chinese-speaking world. It's also a version that draws on multiple previous retellings of the Mulan legend. Wikipedia will tell you that the movie's source material dates to the 11th century, but as so often with Wikipedia, reality is more complicated than that. The image of the ideal woman as a perfect porcelain doll, for instance, dates to the 16th and 17th centuries, and newly restrictive ideas about how women should embody the Confucian ideal of filial piety, loyalty to one's parents. And arguably, getting down to business to defeat the Huns is an innovation of the early 20th century. In discussing the many histories of Mulan, I'm going to do my best to begin at the beginning. As I mentioned before, we don't have a single original Mulan tale, but we have two very early versions. Historians and literary scholars agree that the earliest written version probably dates to a 6th century compilation, Guijin Yuelu, by a Buddhist monk. We know this because of later authors, medieval and modern, who refer to this now lost text. In the earliest surviving manuscripts, from the Song dynasty, 9th and 10th centuries, Mulan appears as a hybrid cultural figure. Her actions, and how they are described, have more in common with the horsewoman poems of northern tribes than classical Chinese poetry. Clearly, she does not conform to ideals of femininity. We meet her weaving at the loom, the iconic social and economic activity of pre-modern women, but her mind is on fighting. This ballad also gives us Mulan's direct speech, explaining her motivations. A sigh, a sigh, and then again a sigh. Mulan was sitting at the door and weaving. One did not hear the sound of loom and shuttle. One only heard her heave these heavy sighs. 
When she was asked who occupied her thoughts, she did not have a man she was in love with. There was no boy who occupied her thoughts. Last night I saw the summons from the army. The Khan is mobilizing all his troops. The list of summoned men comes in twelve copies. Every copy lists my father's name. My father has, alas, no grown-up son, and I, Mulan, I have no adult brother. I want to buy a saddle and a horse to take my father's place and join the army. The ballad goes on to lyrically describe Mulan's acquisition of a warrior's supplies and a warrior's identity. At the eastern market, she bought a fine horse. At the western market, she bought a saddle. At the southern market, she bought a bridle. And at the northern market, she bought a long horsewhip. At daybreak, she bid farewell to her parents. At dawn, she camped at the side of the Yellow River. She couldn't hear her parents' voice calling their daughter. The only sound in her ears was the water of the Yellow River flowing. For ten long years, Mulan fights hard battles. By the time the war is won, the generals are dead. Only the bravest soldiers return to receive honor from the emperor. Clearly, this version is a bit darker than the one with a talking dragon sidekick. But as in the Disney film, Mulan declines military honors to return home to her family. Her parents are overjoyed. Her sister puts on her best dress. Her little brother helps prepare dinner. And when Mulan returns to her old room and puts on women's clothing again, her army buddies, says the poem, were all flabbergasted. Mulan, smirking, I imagine, simply replies to them, The male hair wildly kicks its feet. The female hair has shifty eyes. But when a pair of hairs runs side by side, who can distinguish whether I, in fact, am male or female? The version of the story, written by Tang Dynasty official Wei Yuanfu, retains the same basic elements, but Mulan's disguise and role as a warrior are presented as more temporary. Mulan takes her father's horse instead of buying her own, and her transformation is dwelt on in more detail. She changes away her white silk shirt. She washes away her powdered rouged face. Riding the horse, she reports to the garrison. Filled with noble courage, she wields a sword. This time, too, Mulan's homecoming is a bit more fraught. Whereas in the earliest version, Mulan's parents go outside the city gates to welcome her. Here, their extreme joy turns to sadness and worry, before Mulan reassures them that her days as a warrior are over. From now on, she says, I'll be your darling girl again. Their relatives are amazed by her filial usefulness, and her army buddies are, again, confused. The moral of the story, according to the author, is that all officials and sons should be as dutiful as the daughter Mulan. Exactly when Mulan's story takes place is uncertain. Some place it in the time of the Han, China's most illustrious ancient dynasty. Others put it in the Northern Wei, in approximately the 5th century. This period between major dynasties has often been preferred by modern adaptations, like the opera Mulan Joins the Army, this way, no historical dynasty is portrayed as weak enough to need Mulan, or ruthless enough to conscript aged farmer soldiers like her father. Occasionally, she makes it as late as the cosmopolitan Tang dynasty of the 7th to 9th centuries. 
the fact that her exact historical context is so fluid is itself, to me, a fascinating historical fact, and one of the things that has made Mulan's tale so adaptable. Mulan's story was repeated with variations throughout the medieval period. Numerous Tang poets highlighted her femininity and her heroic patriotism, borrowed phrases from the famous ballad, and even dedicated other poems to Mulan. A 13th century editor of the ballad classified it as the type of song accompanied by flute and drum, and played at military events and on horseback. As cultural ideals of femininity changed under the 16th century Ming dynasty, so too did Mulan. It is the versions of Ming and Qing China that give us the ideal Chinese woman as a perfect porcelain doll, and Mulan as a heroine who defies those norms in service of the central Confucian ideal of loyalty to family. The 16th century artist and playwright Zhu Wei, in his play called Female Mulan Took Her Father's Place in the Army, gives Mulan an enemy in the Black Mountains, and a surname. This is when she becomes Hua Mulan. The play also gives Mulan more of a warrior backstory. When I was young, she explains, I was a strong one, and had a bit of smarts, so I followed my father in studying books and martial arts. As in early poems, she needs to buy her supplies. Here, too, Mulan gets an elaborate scene of putting on her armor and practicing with her weapons, which is echoed in the Disney film. She also unbinds her feet so that she can wear a soldier's leather boots. This is an anachronism. The custom of footbinding was contemporary to the 16th century, not the era when the play was ostensibly set, but it made great theater that made it into numerous later stage and film versions. At the close of the play, Mulan wryly observes that she passed under thousands of glances, which of them could tell cock from hen. Differences between male and female, she concludes, can't be told with the eyes. Later adaptations sought to resolve ambiguities of Mulan's character, but Mulan's relationship to imperial power became, if anything, more contentious in a period when state power was increasingly centralized, but a popular proverb said, the mountain is high and the emperor is far away. A 1732 version asserts that Mulan is definitely chaste and definitely Chinese, and that the story was first written by a Tang dynasty general. In this version, Mulan commits suicide because she must either tend her parents' graves or obey the emperor. A 19th century novel by Zhang Shaoxian, the legendary story of a filial and heroic girl from the Northern Wei, makes Mulan an enemy of the emperor. Mulan's heroism and integrity were praised throughout as historical exemplars of virtuous behavior, however this was understood, and by the early 20th century, Mulan had acquired still more layers as a heroine. From the Song Dynasty onwards, Mulan was claimed by numerous regions of China as a local heroine. Sources from tablet inscriptions to items in gazetteers, from the medieval to the modern, claim the honor brought to particular towns and villages by Mulan. It was not until the 20th century that she became celebrated as a national icon. The 1903 stage play, Mulan Joins the Army, 
shows Mulan thwarting the corrupt imperial official who's collecting bribes from families without adult men capable of joining the Han Emperor's army. The army's mission is, you guessed it, to defeat the Huns. This play also gives Mulan a cheeky cousin named Mushu, who serves as her comic foil. The family attempts to have Mushu sign up for the army as their representative, but he protests, I am only a little student of books, so young of years. Mulan takes his identity, becomes a soldier, and is in due course honored by the emperor. Not only that, but she gets him to retract his conscription order, declaring that the service of the nation is the foremost duty of any subject. In the 1920s and 30s, Mulan's image and Mulan's story became connected with new political and social movements. In the aftermath of empire, China was figuring out what kind of nation and what kind of society it wanted to be. Mulan's ability to defy social norms while upholding traditional Confucian values made her an ideal heroine in many ways for the nationalist movement. She also became a model for the early 20th century's new woman, liberated from constraints of the recent past. Actresses famous for playing modern young women also played Mulan, who became a medieval icon for new possibilities. The 1939 film Mulan Joins the Army also shows Mulan as a trickster figure capable of evading soldiers. Her family is less supportive than in previous versions. When she defies gender norms by hunting, her father commands her to spend the next three days weaving a bolt of silk. Mulan bows angelically and ignores him. Eventually, she persuades her parents to let her take her father's place in the army, that a girl, too, can bring honor to her family. Just tell everyone, she says, that I was always a boy and that you dressed me up to pretend I was a girl. Now that I have grown up, I have changed back into a man. Also in this version, set during the Tang Dynasty, Mulan has a romance with a fellow soldier, Yuan Du. When they have defeated the barbarian hordes, they sing a melancholy love duet, with plausible deniability about singing to each other as men, about how they wish their dreams of romantic partnership could come true. They are both rewarded by the emperor, and Mulan takes Yuan Du to visit her family. As in the earliest version of the poem, she puts women's garments back on and has her hair and makeup done without her, the knowledge of her army friends. When neighboring families send in calling cards to ask Mulan about being matched with a suitable husband, Mulan tells her mother that she's already made her choice. She calls out to Yuan Du in her soldier's voice, and then takes her mom outside to meet him. The screenplay tells us that he looks muddled, but the film ends with Mulan and Yuan Du in each other's arms in her bridal chamber. Aww. Ling Bo, the actress in the 1964 film, was already famous for gender-crossing roles, having played the hero in China's favorite love story. In this story, a young woman disguises herself in order to attend school. There, she shares a room with a young man with whom she forms a passionate, if ultimately doomed, attachment. In the story, social behaviors do a lot to convey the image of masculinity, and it was the male hero, not the cross-dressing heroine, iconically played by Ling Bo, who would later take on the role of General Hua Mulan. The movie's innovation of a romance for Mulan is taken a step further by the famous memoir of Chinese-American author Maxine Hong Kingston. 
In Kingston's memoir, Warrior Woman, Mulan is semi-secretly married to a fellow soldier. Their son is even born while they are on campaign, to the delight and celebration of the entire army. The 20th and 21st centuries have seen even more versions of Mulan, including multiple novels, plays, and operas, and of course, Disney's animated version of Mulan. This film draws on the many Mulans that have come before, from iconic scenes and imagery to characters and plotlines. The forthcoming Disney film, drawing also on traditions of martial arts movies, promises to be yet another creative take on the legend or legends of Mulan that have been told and retold for almost 1,500 years. Lan Dong has argued that no single text presents us with a quote-unquote real Mulan, or even a universally known one, that is to say, a version of the legend on which there was popular consensus. Less dated than hyper-specific concerns, the issues at the heart of Mulan's story are ones relevant to any time period, and arguably to any culture. What happens when your duty isn't clear? What happens when you have to play a social role to get what you want? Or even to do what you must? What happens when different cultural values, in this case, family loyalty and the performance of ideal femininity, are in tension with each other? The two earliest surviving versions of Mulan's story, as we have seen, come up with different answers to these questions. The first anonymous ballad from the Yuefu tradition begins and ends with highlighting the fluidity of Mulan's gender roles and even gender identity. The second praises Mulan's integrity as a model for imperial scholars and subjects. This highlights another important element of Mulan's story that is always central. Whatever her relationship to gender, to her family, or to the distant emperor, she is always fully herself. Interested in owning some footnoting history merch? You can find out more through our shop link at www.footnotinghistory.com. Want to support the show and keep it open access? Our Patreon is at patreon.com forward slash footnoting underscore history. You can also follow us on Twitter at History Footnote or on Facebook and Instagram at Footnoting History. And of course, the best stories are always in the footnotes. 